Welcome to the Honor the Gift Podcast. I am your host, Art McCracken. I specialize in transformational leadership and high-performance coaching. I've worked with hundreds of companies and thousands of individuals along the way, helping them achieve greater outcomes in all aspects of their life. I'm a speaker and writer, but at the end of the day, none of that holds a candle to being a husband, father, and friend. I believe the greatest gift in our mortal existence is the gift of choice. How we honor that gift will shape the eternities. I also believe that career is a way of being and not just a way of life. And when you figure that out, by learning to let go of the charades and leaning into growth, life just seems to unlock itself. I know this because I've lived it. Quite simply, my calling is people experience living true. Thank you for being here. Thank you for making the commitment to lean into growth. I honor your journey. Now, let's do this. Hello, friends. Welcome to another weekly episode. In this week's episode, I want to introduce you to a good friend, a great guest. Uh, excited for you to hear from him. Let me start by introducing this next guest. He's a New York Times bestselling author, coach on Growth Day. He hosts a podcast called Rise Together. 10 million downloads in 2020. Uh, he speaks regularly on mindset and leadership. He's a member of the Motion Picture Academy. He served as a board member for a handful of organizations. He's former president of global theatrical distribution for the Walt Disney Company. First and foremost, though, he is a father of four children, an adoptive father, and a four-time foster dad. He's the captain of his own ship and a beacon for others. Fresh out of Dripping Springs, Texas, Dave Hollis. Welcome to the show, my friend. Uh, my friend Art, it's so good to be here with you today, my man. Always good to be with you. Uh, always enjoy talking to you. You're always generous with your time. I want to get right into it. I know we've talked in the past. Uh, I've got some questions, kind of a list of things that I think would be fun to talk about for this specific audience. As you know, this audience is all about honoring the gift and leaning into life and leaning, leaning into the challenges that each of us face to create opportunities from those to have a greater impact and influence in life. So I want to start today at the top of the mountain. August 23rd, 2019, Snow Basin, 29029. Tell me about that. Well, this is one of those stories where you sometimes find yourself in a situation that you do not have a handle on until you are inside of it. And that was the story of climbing a mountain. Uh, 29029 was uh, this experience to try and replicate Everest. Everesting is what it's called. Could you climb 29,000 vertical feet over a 36 hour window of time to simulate what it might be like to get to the top of the highest peak in the world? And uh, I came into this event knowing some of the organizers of the event, having no concept of the conditions that I was walking into how hard it was going to be, the challenging pieces of not just the physical part, but really the mental part of continuing to push through what was something wildly beyond what I was previously aware of my own ability to tackle. And uh, it was something that just in, in being on that mountain and coming off of it reframed how I thought about what I could handle and how I thought about my own capacity for pushing myself into situations that were beyond my depths. And so uh, it was one of these, I, I will say, it's one of these things where it's 13 climbs, the, the, the version I did, it was a mountain in Utah. And I found myself two climbs in, unsure of my ability to finish the 13. 
And there was this like version of who I've always been, the practical, pragmatic person that I am, that started storytelling. Hey, if I'm not going to make 13, is it even <laughs> worth going to three? Is it even worth going to five? Right. And I had this beautiful, it was like a God moment kind of thing. And that after the second ascent, each of these ascents, about an hour and 45 minutes of the hardest workout I've ever experienced in my life. I'm coming back down on a gondola and I'm sitting across from a guy who in Colin, uh, who just himself crossed Antarctica, Colin O'Brady. Uh, he's sitting across from me. We're getting to know each other inside of the 13 minutes of this uh, trip down the mountain in a, in a gondola. And I didn't know who he was. And so, you know, we struck up a conversation and he represents that, yep, he just solo, unassisted, pulled a sled across the continent. And in that moment, I had this shared humanity experience where I was like, wait a second, we're made of the same skin and bones. We're, we're you know, like created by the same creator. You just crossed a continent and I'm questioning my ability to climb back up this mountain for the next hour and 45 minutes. And it flipped a switch. It was just in that moment I realized, wow, if he could do something that feels wildly beyond anything I could possibly ever reach for, certainly I can tap into something inside of myself to do something beyond what I believe myself to be capable of in real time. And for the next, you know, 30 hours, there I was climbing back up that mountain. You get to the bottom and there's this saying, just turn right. You know, you get to the bottom of that lift, just turn right, head right back up the mountain. And for, I think, so many of us who find ourselves inside of adversity that we have maybe never experienced before, sometimes seeing that there are others who have been through some hard stuff and are stronger for having been through it, that model in that moment was something that was borrowed belief, right? I, I, I saw something in how he was able to do something for himself that made me believe that maybe I was capable of doing something that was bigger than myself in real time. What was even maybe more wild in coming off the mountain, <clears throat> I just wrote this in my next book. I had uh, for years, a couple years, been running pretty regularly where my long run was on a Sunday. And I come off the mountain where for 35 and a half hours, I have been doing the hardest hour, 45 minute workouts back to back 13 times. And the next Sunday, I go out on the roads to run my normal Sunday run. And my long run on a Sunday at that time was about five or six miles, like a little more than an hour's worth of pushing myself. And that next Sunday, for some reason, I mean, not for some reason, for this reason, I get back on the road and the idea of pushing myself for an hour, hour 15 seemed ridiculous as a thing to push myself toward because I just came off of an experience where I proved I now had evidence that I was capable of doing 13 consecutive hardest workouts of my life back to back. And so I put on my shoes that day. And instead of running my five or six miles, I ran a neighborhood half marathon. I ran 13.1 miles because I knew that I could. And I did so what turned out to be 19 consecutive weekends leading into my 20th, which was my first marathon. And I had never previously run that many miles on consecutive weekends. And I certainly had never run a marathon. But there was something about that experience on the mountain that just changed the way I thought about what I was capable of. And in having now evidence of what I could do, I put it to practice and it just fundamentally changed the way I felt equipped to handle something like pushing myself to run further distance. It was such an amazing event. The reason I wanted to go there and 
and and walk into this next section as I followed closely. In fact, I think you and I spoke right after that event, and you were sharing with me how interesting it was and this desire to go back to the mountain more than once. And so as we shift on this just a little bit, there was or there is a great Haitian proverb that says "Demon Gemon." It stands for "Beyond the mountains are more mountains." And I know Ryan Holiday, a local uh, author in your neck of the woods, wrote the book "Obstacle is the Way." So, if the mountain is the obstacle, and recognizing that there are more mountains beyond that mountain, how many times have you been to the mountain since then? Well, it's a wild thing because you know this last year has without question been the hardest year of my entire life. Uh, I, I went through identity challenge and relationship transition and stepping into what I believe to be my calling in a way that made me have to be vulnerable and work inside of spaces that I don't yet have great expertise. And what I didn't appreciate at the time was that as much as I'd indicated at the beginning of 2020 that I was teeing it up to be my best year yet, that I didn't actually get a say in the conditions that would produce that best year. And so as much as, man, I don't want to relive a lot of the things that I've experienced in the past year. I got divorced. I've had to deal with everything that anyone who's listening has had to deal with in 2020 with a global pandemic and social unrest and a presidential election, a long overdue racial reckoning and all the things and yet, I am the strongest, the, the most connected to God, the closest to my kids in the best shape of my life, not in spite of the things that happened, but because of the things that happened. And so I, you know, hey, I'm not interested necessarily in having hard things present themselves in the future, but in a beautiful way, I think having had to have the mountain come to me and having to climb it over and over and over again over this last year in a way that broke down the muscle to build it back up stronger. I think I've reframed a little bit of how I think about adversity and tenacity and grit and resilience and anything else for it being, like Ryan would say, the way to ultimately unlocking who I've been placed on this planet to be. So you're writing a book. I know you're in the waning stages, hopefully waning stages of edits. You've got a tattoo on your forearm that says a ship in harbor is safe, but that's not what ships are built for. Dovetail into that. And without previewing too much of the book on this, on the hills of this conversation of mountains, recognizing that personal growth is a choice. Talk to us about that phrase. Yep. So I got this tattoo on my arm. It's been uh, a mantra of sorts in the journey of the last handful of years. It says a ship in harbor is safe but that's not what ships were built for. And it's a reminder every single day to me that I was built for this, right? I'm a person who I think has historically appreciated certainty or the, the, the illusion of certainty, the, the idea of control, comfort as a thing that I might be able to engineer. And I've done so a lot of times at the expense of growth, at the expense of who I've been placed on this planet to be. And as much as I am doing my best to every single day answer this question that just keeps coming up, how can I honor the intention of my creator, right? Like when people ask me, what's your definition of success? 
my definition of success is how every day I might make a step toward honoring the very deliberate design, the very intentional intention of my creator. And that intention is something that requires believing that my growth, my fulfillment, my purpose might be made available to me as I'm willing to push away from a harbor that I may have attached some value to in its safety or its security or its comfort because it's in discomfort. It's in the choppy waters. It's in the wind and the waves that I ultimately end up growing and ultimately get a step closer to who I am supposed to be, who I'd hope to become. And so, you know, there are days like anyone who's listening where you will question if it's worth leaving the thing that you know. I mean, there's plenty of times where I think we as humans convince ourselves to settle for suffering we're familiar with because we know it, because there's predictability to it. Even if it's killing us, we can convince ourselves to stay with what we know. And as someone who has absolutely 100% been stuck, I know for sure 100% certainty that the thing I need most is to challenge the familiarity that I've become accustomed to because when I become too safe, when I'm too comfortable, I stop growing and if I'm not growing, I cannot be fulfilled. I can't get closer to answering that question of how I honor the intention of my creator. And so that is a mantra. The theme of leaving a harbor is a big part of what ends up being the book that I'm currently just about to turn in. It's really understanding where you are, where you'd hope to go, where in hoping to get there, you might unlock this question of honoring the intention of your creator and what it's going to take to get there. And a lot of it comes back to challenging the allure of the harbor, challenging the allure of, and sometimes the anchor of the societal constructs, the comfort of other people that we love or crave love from, the things that we've been programmed to believe good men do or good girls do, real men. Uh, you know, and, and, and those things are hard because, man, and that programming's been with us since we were little human beings. And yet, understanding who you are, listening to that intuition, sitting in a conversation with your creator and, and really taking that leap, un, unleashing yourself from the dock and pushing into the hard, choppy, uncomfortable waters that live beyond the jetty is where you might actually fulfill what you were put on this planet to be, where you might actually find something of purpose. It's interesting you bring that up. I wonder how much of our identity is built in the harbor. You shared in a recent post on Instagram, uh, as you were looking back, you were assembling a, I guess, a marketing reel for some of your speaking, and you were looking back at some of your historic images from your time at Disney and time in former career, and you shared or expanded on that, this departure from the harbor. Talk to me about that identity that was formed in the harbor and maybe that that lean into calling that called you away from the harbor. Yeah. I, what's interesting is when I think back, I'm 46 now at 26, right? I had a vision of what I wanted to be and, and where I thought my happiness would come from. And I think if I could go back to that 26 year old version of myself and tell me anything, it would be two things. One, that most of the things that I was afraid of either weren't real or were actually there to produce a better version of myself, lean into them and walk toward them. But 
more importantly, the second thing I would say is that the things I thought would make me happy wouldn't, right? I, I had visions and dreams at 26 that were uh, wildly more about my identity personally or my status or my ability to be happy when, when I had a certain bank account, when I hit a certain level in the organization. And uh, as much as it was great to have those goals, I ended up achieving great, I'm so grateful for it. And man, I've been afforded so much privilege and the ability to pursue it and have it come to pass. But I got the title. I was able to make a certain amount of money and I wasn't feeling the things that someone who has what collectively society suggests is what you should be shooting for ought to feel. So at 40, right as I was going through that midlife transition between 30 and 40, I just started asking some bigger existential questions of why am I on this planet? Why, why have I been afforded these gifts? And is this the best use of them in a way that might produce fulfillment? Am I connected to purpose? And I, at the time, I, right, I was, uh, to your point, I was working at the Walt Disney Company and I had been leading the sales team, putting movies into movie theaters during what was arguably the most prolific run in the history of the movie business. And because of the collection of intellectual property, because of the greatest team on the planet, because of the best leadership ever assembled, I didn't have to study to get straight A grades. And there was something in that disconnect between having to use some of the gifts that were afforded to me and the results that were happening, the celebration and the high fives and the win that made me feel like, man, is this what it's all about? So I inevitably had to leave my career for my calling. I had to really go back to who did I want to be before I became who I became? What, what do I believe I've been uniquely, deliberately designed for? And were those gifts and tools being given as much oxygen in that environment? Or might I need to do something unconventional and different to tap into something that feels closer to calling? And I made a tough choice. It was hard. I'm not sure that many necessarily would leave the president of distribution at the Walt Disney Company, especially in the midst of the greatest run of all time. But I, in making that choice, found myself in entrepreneurship, found myself walking from an inside of an organization, helping the success of other people to standing out front in book writing and podcasting and coaching, attempting to use my words, my experiences, the things that I've learned or picked up along the way to afford people the tools that might, if they've experienced something similar to me, some breakthroughs that help them in their journey as well. Guess what? It was jarring. I mean, it was difficult because I'm now on my own. I'm doing the work that I believe I've been called into. And yet that work was still something that was new. It was something that was uncomfortable and disorienting and required that I come back to the mindset and the habits and the routines and the community and the time in conversation with God and all the rest to make sure that I was able to continue on the journey, even on the days where it felt hard, where my insecurity reared itself, where my negative coping mechanism showed up, where my imposter syndrome was barking, whatever it might be. And that's inevitably the case for anyone who's listening. As you choose to follow your intuition, your gut, your instinct, if you listen to what feels like a call from God, 
you may be drawn into a place where it has you questioning everything you've ever known. And that is okay. It's just, I think, part of and maybe price of entry for stepping closer to the reason why you've been placed on this planet. So the deep work that's ensued over the last few years, as you've tossed and turned along those waves and, and climbed the mountains and moved through the storms and continue to progress, continue to, to just shoot for that other horizon, what has come up for you or where have you kind of settled in on calling? Well, I've tried to take it piece by piece along four different kind of lenses, as it were. I mean, I think it starts truly with passion. Like you have to be passionate about something for it to feel like it connects to calling. And passion is something, I had this conversation with someone named Stephen Coulter. It's just, man, stuck with me. But the idea that passion, as in like kind of playing in a bunch of different areas to see where something internally is stoked, we're in having something that feels like a place that you were just meant to live can be fostered and catered to and grown that affords you something he calls focus for free, right? Like you just will pay more attention. You'll be more excited to get out of bed. You'll maintain motivation longer when you have passion for something. And it don't matter if it makes sense to anybody else. Your passion is your passion. I think a lot of times we listen to what other people tell us we ought to be passionate about rather than following our own passion. So the first piece is just it's passion, right? And, and in my conversation with Stephen, I, I, mean, I love this, but like passion is something that can be as you spend time with it and develop mastery around it, become purpose. Because if you are able to, in developing your passion, have it ultimately affect others it becomes something that feels more like purpose. That, that, comes, that, that brings me to my second piece, which is I like to ask beyond passion how you, with the unique gifts that you've been given, can afford light to others, right? Like service to others, how you can, like I, I believe that we've been given a gift, each of us, uniquely, individually, between our competencies, our experiences, our wiring, the way that we think, and the responsibility of that gift is to give it to other people. And so how you can take the gifts that you've been given and gift them to others is the next big question. Because when you can take passion and connect it to impact, it becomes purpose. Okay? The third big thing ends up being competency, skill. What are you good at? Right? I think each of us, again, have been given an innate number of specific gifts that we are uniquely qualified in. I think you have qualifications to do a whole host of things, but I happen to be qualified as a writer, as a speaker. There's some things that I'm just innately good at. And so if I can find a way to take things that I have personal passion for and might affect others or afford others light and combine them with my unique set of skills, well, now we're cooking with gas. And in the fourth piece, if you end up being someone who's listening that also needs to be considerate of taking care of your family, the question then becomes, well, how do you get paid for something like that, right? How do you create some kind of financial sustenance by taking something that you have passion for that can afford light to others and that you're good at and actually make some money from it? And I think the confluence, the overlapping Venn diagram of those four things tend to be where people feel most connected to their why. And, you know, like it's not something, again, that I think just like magically appears 
instantly. It's something that is going to be something of a mission that you're on to suss out over the course of your life. But if you start asking those questions of where are my passions? How can I impact other people? What am I great at? And can I make some money from this? I think each day you'll just get a little bit closer to actually having the, the hope for the why that you might be missing and, and a sense of purpose and calling that uh, maybe gets you out of bed every day, feeling like you can go do it even on the days that you necessarily don't have the motivation to. You mentioned service and gifts. Uh, for me, that that's a huge thing. I think that gifts, the gifts in our life are given to us, not for us, but for us to use in the service of others. And I think that the gifts actually become magnified as they're used in service. I think that's where they become valuable. I think that's where they blossom and, and develop. Hello, friends. Thank you for tuning in. Hope you're enjoying this week's episode. If growth, personal growth and development is your thing and you're here learning and leaning into growth, glad you're here, glad you're part of the community. If you want more of this, make sure and hit subscribe in this podcast platform or any of your favorite podcast platforms. Search for Honor the Gift podcast and make sure and subscribe so that it shows up each week with new updates, new conversations new learning, new ideas and concepts, again, to help us all in this journey we call growth and how we make it through life and the way that we show up for others. Also, if you are looking for more information, deeper dives into some of these conversations, and just an update to stay in the loop, you can always go to choiceisthegift.com and click on subscribe where you'll be in the loop on things that are upcoming and more updates on this podcast. Again, thank you for being here. Now let's get back to the episode. If if you're to look in your life and, and maybe share with this audience, are there some guiding principles that, that show up for you day in and day out? In terms of service, I mean, I've tried to stay connected to, well, a couple of things. I mean, I, I try to stay connected to how the work that I do might afford someone an empathy bridge, if you will. Right. Like if I can, in my vulnerability, in my storytelling, in the sharing of my own personal struggle, make someone feel a little more normal for the humanity that we all share. That is struggle and a little bit of how I've applied tools to the struggle, then maybe I can affect impact because of what feels like shared experience. So, I mean, I start with um, please ego, take a back seat. Let's instead try and through something of a, hum, a humble, some humility in storytelling and sharing, create vulnerability that might allow people to see some of themselves in my stories or in the work I might do in the podcast or in, in, in any of the things I might do in social. Can I find other people whose stories might bring into the consciousness of the listener, the, the intended audience, uh, an experience that changes a little bit of how they might think about the experience of other people? But more than that, even on like when I think about like where I give my time or where I give my my money, I try to find things that I have personal experience with, personal passion for. And so uh, as a for example, I, I am, as you mentioned in the intro, a four time foster parent. And part of the story of our experience with foster care was one of tragedy. It was hard in that we believed ourselves to be at the end of our foster journey, 
adopting through foster care, a pair of twins who'd been left at the hospital, four days old, get a phone call. You've got a 20 minute window to make a decision. Would you like to adopt these two babies? Answer is yes. Show up, pick these girls up, name them, bring them home for eight weeks. They came back to our house. We love them. Twins are tough. Twins coming off of having some exposure to drugs, tougher, but they were part of our family. And we had this vision for what our family was going to look like for the rest of time. And eight weeks in, we got a phone call from a social worker inside of the foster system, letting us know that uh, their adoptability had been misrepresented, right? It was something that a, an emergency placement worker said because it was a thing that might keep these girls together. And in a way that was just devastating for our family, they left. They had to be picked up and taken back to someone who on the biological side of things was fighting for custody unbeknownst to us. And as much as, man, I'm going to pray every single day for those kids and their welfare, I'm also going to do the work every single day of trying to be supportive of anything inside of the philanthropic space that helps provide support for foster care because I had an experience for a little more than a year's worth of time inside the system that revealed that it's not just a, a system that is built on tragedy. No one should ever have to have their children removed and man, those kids are going through so much, but the system itself has plenty of flaws. And so, uh, you know, when it comes to where I might wield some of my impact, I have a lot of personal passion for that. So as a listener, I would argue, hey, if you've had individual experiences where you've seen firsthand something inside of the world that just didn't write, that just, you know, keeps you up a little bit at night or, or makes you feel something for consecutive days, that might be a sign that that's a place where you can use some of the gifts that you have been given on, on a, a sign that sits over our dining room table is a, a family mantra, if you will, a little reminder of what we stand for. And amongst it, it's an excerpt of a Bible verse. It says, to whom much is given, much is expected. And so for us as a family, the idea that we might lean into communities that maybe don't have the kind of access, the opportunity, the financial backing, whatever it might be, uh, to whom much is given, much is expected. And I wanna be able to lean into certainly any community that's been marginalized in any way, but especially one that I've got personal deep passion for because of a personal experience that will be with me for the rest of my life. You bring up experiences and I love the phrase that you used, empathy bridge. How much of our calling is influenced by the experiences or the things that we have maybe felt in our life that have been afforded to us that start to inform a way of being? And it informs, just as you've indicated, what we might engage ourselves with, where we may give of our, our time, our talents, our resources, where we might exercise our gifts. In calling, could it perhaps be that that we are we are living in a way that others experience something and maybe that is an empathy bridge maybe that is an acknowledgement or a place of, of validation but in this in these thoughts of of formation of calling how much of it do you believe is influenced by the things that we've felt that have been impactful in our own lives i think i mean a ton of it i think comes from that uh, but I think there's almost an opportunity 
for each of us to do some of the hard work of pushing into communities that are experiencing life in a way that's disconnected from how we have ourselves experienced life. Because if, if it's only about the way that you've experienced things, you may think that it's normal or that you know everyone has the same kind of access or opportunity that um, that you might and and it's not until you actually spend some time inside of any any space any any community any way of living life um, that you see oh wait it's actually different if you have a different kind of life experience. And so like I I love I, as a part of this podcast that I do called Rise Together my intention with the podcast is to bring people who've had a different life experience onto the show to challenge the listener, possibly put themselves in the shoes of someone who's walked a different road than they might have. So I think to answer your question, it's a combination of both, right? I think our calling can be influenced certainly by the things that we have personally experienced, but I think there's an opportunity for us to go outside of our own experiences, become like become active in community with people who've had a different life experience to understand what it's like to do life in their shoes and understand why those differences might exist between the way that you are afforded certain things in your life and the way that they might experience something that's different in their own. Thank you for that perspective, Dave. Three people that have held the most influence in your life and why? Three people, oh my goodness. Um, I mean, I'll start with my parents because I think for any of us, our family of origin ends up being the primary source of our capital T truths. Uh, I was raised by parents who on Tuesday celebrated their 48th wedding anniversary. So as a model, right, for uh, choosing to stick in it and work through it and, and fight to be married and uh, and model that, man, what an awesome thing they were and have always been very, very much in their faith and have, uh, you know, given so many of the attributes that I am proud of in my own life to me because of who they are. So uh, I'll start with my parents. Uh I'll, I'll go the opposite direction then and say my kids. I know this isn't one person, but I have four kids and each of them uh, in their wild uniqueness is this reminder of both the wonder and awesomeness that is the possibility of what might exist in their future and also the responsibility that I have to model the kind of behavior I would hope that they would embody when they become grown adults. Uh, and then the last I'd say is, is God, Jesus, my creator, the, the, the way that I have a relationship in faith certainly has been uh, super important in who I'd hope to be. I just, uh, the, the, the message that I listened to at, uh, at church on Sunday was about Thomas. Here we were the week after Easter talking about doubt and how uh, people find themselves needing proof to believe. And uh, it's an interesting thing because I have historically referred to myself as a skeptic. I'm someone who also in the practical, pragmatic wiring of my brain loves to see proof. And so I found myself drawn into this message. And uh, there was something in the way that it was taught and told that has just stuck with me. The idea that, yep, there was a generation of people, certainly Thomas in first person was able to put his fingers inside the wounds and get proof of this thing that he didn't believe. But after that, you know, faith became what faith is, which is belief without proof. And the, 
the conversation inside of this message was that the responsibility that any of us have with our faith, no matter what you believe, right? You can believe like me, you can believe like art, you can believe like any of us. But the responsibility you have with faith is to become the proof, right? Like I'd hope that the actions of my day give people the belief in my faith because of the witness of my actions. And I, I love that, right? Because I think in so many ways, the things that I have believed in my faith have been guardrails in how to live, how to show up, how to love on other people, how to afford grace, forgiveness, all, all kinds of things. Those are probably the three most generic answers you could actually get on this <laughs> podcast. But I'll tell you what, that's the, those are the things that come to mind. Well, if those come to mind, uh, you and I, we share a unique, uh, I guess, perspective, perspectives of our own. But we share in the stewardship of being a father. Uh, I know for me, fatherhood is not a safe harbor by any means. Uh, it's very much a challenge. It's something that uh, rocks me every day and how I can honor that stewardship. And I learn something all the time. And, and so you talked about the influence that your children have had in your life and are having and that hold as a place of high influence. Let me give you an opportunity to share one attribute or one lesson from each one of your children individually. So let's start with Ford. What has Ford taught you? <laughs> well, I'll start with the lesson they've all taught me, and then I'll go one by one. Right. I think it's important to start with this, right? Like if I had a misconception of what fatherhood would be like before I had kids, I thought that there would be a utilitarian application to my parenting style, right? Like I would just be a dad that was a constant for each of them. And that would have been uh, a missed opportunity to connect with each of them because of how unique each of them are. They have their own love languages, their own wiring, the way that they each think, their own personal passions. And so the dad that I am to Jackson and Sawyer and Ford and Noah ends up being different, right? There are constants, of course, across all four, but the style that I engage and the things that we do, they are wildly and totally unique and meet them hopefully where they are in a way that pours into each of them uniquely. So that's the, the first thing I would say, man, they're just each so different and unique. Ford, in particular, is an adventurer. He is an, a creative. He is an outdoorsman. He is the kid who can entertain himself for an hour and you wonder, is everything okay? And everything, of course, is fine because he's now made a full canvas painting of the backyard. <laughs> it's just like the most amazing thing. And so I think Ford reminds me to continue to try and tap into an imagination that I sometimes have a voice talking me out of believing in. He, he is the person who is most connected to his imagination. And, uh, and maybe it's nine, you know, like he's, he's just at that age where he believes that anything is possible. And I dig that about him. It makes me believe that anything is possible just from spending time with him. Awesome. What about Noah? I mean, Noah is, she's the greatest. Um, Noah is the greatest and she's also a total monster because at four, I mean, let's be clear, you know, like <laughs> four-year-olds are like just at that age where they're pushing the boundaries on, um, on what they can get away with. So I think the thing that I, I take away from, from Noah in real time truly is to test convention, right? Like she is currently seeing how long she 
she can stretch out bedtime. She is seeing uh, how much she can get away with to get a second dessert. She's trying with her cuteness or her dancing, her pouting or whatever it might be to just see how far the bounds of our, our rules end up affording some elasticity. And um, I think we each live inside of some kind of constraint, some kind of rule, whether it's a societal construct, some belief that was handed down to us from our family of origin, what we think other people will think of us if we deviate from how they want us to show up. And I think she's a constant reminder right now of it being okay to push a little bit against the, the convention and, and the rules to see if they're in a little bit of give in something <laughs> that you have passion for. Yeah, that's excellent. It's fun to watch that. What about Jackson? Uh, Jackson is to a T. He is the most confident human I have met. I love the fact that he is so comfortable in his own skin. He is so comfortable being totally unique in the way he wants to shop at Goodwill and the way that he is so, so excited about musical theater, the way that he has whatever he has, the shows that he likes, the music he listens to, it is uniquely and totally him. And he does not care if anybody else has an issue with it. And there is something in that that I want to borrow on the days when I start to get insecure, worried about my stepping into or closer to what I believe to be my own calling. Uh, I, I am excited for what his future looks like because he's already got something solved at 14 mm -hmm. that a lot of us struggle with for most of our life. And that is that desire to conform to what the rest of people would have us be or or acting in a way that would make them comfortable at the expense of our truth. And he is just so connected to his own truth, his own experience. And it's man, what a, it's an admirable quality. I'm so proud of who he is in part because of how much he knows himself. All right, let's round it out with Sawyer. Sawyer is, um, he is the most emotional of my kids in the best way, right? Like there's a, there's like a double-edged sword to any of your, like any of your strengths can be weaknesses, but he is somebody that gets so passionate about frankly, anything. And so I think if there was a thing for me of like what I like look to glean from him or what I hope rubs off from his personality to mine, I don't ever want to mail it in. I don't ever want to just do it so it can be done. I want to do it in a way that has some kind of excellence, that has some kind of effort, that feels like it's full of the kind of passion that he brings to, to almost anything. He is, he is, he's my sports kid and the way that he prepares for a game, the way that he's in a game, the way that he feels a game, both the wins and the losses. Um, he's feeling the day in a way that is admirable and the way that I hope to feel the day as well. Full, both ends of the spectrum in all of the emotions, but in a way that feels like everything's been left on the field. And there's something I think beautiful about that. I can tell that they're having a tremendous impact. If they're not within earshot of this interview, I hope that you'll take an opportunity to share with them your thoughts. Uh, it's I will. I will. I will. Good. Good. Very good. All right. Um, shift gears just a little bit, and then uh, we're going to bring it home. You talk in your first book that you were a skeptic of growth. Debate that for somebody that today is a skeptic of growth. Yeah. When I was introduced to even the idea of growth mindset, something I believe in so much today, the idea that I needed to do work, that I needed to grow, that I needed a tool 
implied that I wasn't already there, that I wasn't good, that I wasn't enough, that I wasn't whole. And I pushed back against it. I tried to argue against it because I didn't like the implication that I couldn't already figure it out with the skills that I had or that I uh, in some ways needed to become because I'd like to argue that I was already there. And that's, I mean, what a, what a way to go through life. That, that's no way to go through life because then you end up getting stuck. And I was very much at the beginning of my journey so stuck. And I can now have some gratitude for how stuck I was because it took me getting to a place of feeling super stuck to finally be at a place where I had to reach for growth. I had to reach for the tools and the resources that would allow me to get out of the ditch I found myself in. Some of the ditch, a self-inflicted ditch. I dug much of the hole myself, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, it's only been in this last three years, truly, where I went from leaning on some of just the innate stuff that I was afforded to acknowledging, oh man, there's more here. There's more for me. There's even a greater way for me to impact people or a deeper way for me to feel when I'm in a, a position to grow. I, I just, I don't know that I appreciated that connection between growth and fulfillment. And now I can see if you're not growing, you're dying. You know, it's not it's not like, oh, if you're not growing, you're treading water. No, if you're not growing, you're dying. And I can now see that when I am in a posture of growth, when I am in pursuit of growth, yep, it is uncomfortable because when you're doing new things and you are growing, inevitably, you're going to fail, you're going to stumble, you're going to make mistakes, it's going to trigger your insecurities or anxiety, but also you're going to learn, you're going to find new tools, you're going to become, and I think we're all in a pursuit of becoming right? Like my hope is that I'm just a little bit better tomorrow and I'm just a little bit better the day after. And as long as I can continue that trajectory, I get to do the thing that is most important in my life. I get to feel good about myself when I'm by myself. That is, I think, the mission that most of us have. How can you feel good about yourself when you're by yourself? Well, you know, when, when I have not felt good, I can tell you this. It's when I said I wanted to be a certain kind of person or believed myself to have been called into a certain space, but instead of doing the things that would have got me a step closer on that day, the only day I can control, I mailed it in or made excuses, listened to my fear, stepped back from really putting myself out there. And that delta that ended up existing between how I showed up and how I could have shown up, that's where shame where guilt, where regret, where compromised confidence, motivation, fatigue all show up. And so, you know, the days when I'm able to actually, even when it's uncomfortable, even because it's uncomfortable, step into it, I can create integrity between who I'd hope to be on that day. And I can feel great about myself when I'm by myself. For those that are listening, I, I always ask the question, what it means for the guest to live true. I think you just gave a phenomenal uh, definition and expression of that. I think the moments in our life where we feel in dissonance, we know it. We feel it. We sense it. We know we're not, you know, just like you said, we're mailing in the check. To yep. move from dissonance to resonance, to move from our weaker state to a place of integrity, a place of, of significance that's relative to know to knowing or feeling what we can become and leaning into that, to me, very much is... An indication of living truth. So I, I, I appreciate your perspective on that, Dave. I really do. Okay, here's a bonus question. Um, I don't know if anybody's ever asked you this before, but uh, <laughs> I'm going to have you close your eyes. And I want you 
to think of this very special someone in your life who's been through their own transformation with all the presence you can muster. Describe this beast of a machine that was conceived in the year 1969, the Incredible Hulk. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. I mean, I have this truck. It's a Bronco. It was originally created in 1969. But the pieces of this now 1969 Ford Bronco are limited to the VIN number, which I might, uh, I do believe is maybe the only piece of 1969 <laughs> that's left on this truck. I, uh, in, in the greatest slash worst midlife crisis moment, uh, I, I ended up going to work on this truck while I was still working at Disney thinking that, yep, this truck, this, this beautiful green 1969 Ford Bronco rebuilt is going to be the things going to fill my soul in the places where it doesn't feel full in real time. And as much as that thing is a pleasure to drive, uh, that wasn't the answer, to be honest. Uh, it's, it is, it is, such a, I mean, here's the thing. It's such a fun truck. It's the loudest vehicle God's ever created. Number one, you cannot have a conversation. I could, I can't take a phone call on that thing. And, uh, it turns out 1969 vehicles, even if they are rebuilt, still require trips to the shop more often than anyone would ever like. So, uh, if you're having a midlife moment, There are so many alternatives to investing in an 18 month, very expensive process of rebuilding a Bronco that I would like to draw your attention to. Start with a book, (laughs) start with a podcast. (laughs) That's fantastic. What would your soul show us? Well, I'm gonna start where I think, uh, or end where I started in that I just, I would encourage each of you to try and connect as much as you can to this truth that you were very intentionally and deliberately created. You are one of one. Of the seven billion people walking this planet and the billions before it, no one, not one, has the set of experiences, the wiring of your brain, the feelings that you feel, the gifts that you have from a strengths perspective, not one. And it's our work, our job to whom much is given much as expected. It's our job to honor the intention of our creator, not to question if there was a mistake in that deliberate design, not to worry if you standing in it might make other people uncomfortable, not to worry of what it might mean as you try and live into it. If you're going to fail, of course you will as you learn along the way. But honoring the intention of my creator has been the single most important guiding light in this hardest and best year of my life. And every day, I'm gonna try and wake up and create integrity between how I'd hope to show up and honoring that creator's intention and what I do today, this day, the only day I control. I can't change the past. I have no effect whatsoever on the future. I can control today. And how I show up today, how you show up today, ought to be something that honors the intention of your creator. Very beautiful, my friend. What's on the horizon? New projects, new ventures, new relationships, new growth. Bring us a little bit behind the curtain and then tell us where where we can find you, where we can spend more time with Dave. Right on. All those things are on the horizon. I am uh, in real time. Tomorrow, I turn in the final edits of the next book. It's called Built Through Courage leaving your safe harbor for a purpose-filled life 
comes out uh, late October. Trust me, I'll talk about it until people are sick of me talking about it. Uh, I'm still recording every Thursday, new episode of uh, the Rise Together podcast, having conversations with people that hopefully afford something of an empathy bridge between their experience and that of the listener. I'm doing coaching, as you mentioned, inside of this cool platform called Growth Day, where in a masterclass kind of way, myself, Brendan Bouchard, Mel Robbins, David Bach, Jenna Kutcher, a host of others. There's 12 or 13 of us as coaches. Uh, you jump into that membership, you got access to each of us on Tuesdays and Thursdays doing live coaching and forever access to each of the courses that we've done. And I'm loving it. If you're interested in that, growthday.com forward slash Hollis. You can check it out. There's a free trial inside of there. I uh, am working on a kid's book, uh, which is an exciting thing. I've got this fun series with my daughter, Noah, called Tea Time with Noah on the internet, and we've turned it into a kid's book, and I'm uh, excited. It will come out February 2, 2222. Uh, it's coming out, uh, but the idea in that, in a mindset and motivation book that I'm working on for eight to 12 year old boys, this conceit that, hey, if I could plant some truths into young minds, like the minds of those that live inside this house, maybe I could make obsolete some of the things that I'm creating resource-wise for adults, because they'll already just believe in themselves and not have to have someone help them when they become a little bit older. And that, I mean, there's just, there's so much goodness happening inside of, uh, inside of this world right now. I'm, I'm in a new relationship. Yep. That is an interesting slash uh, wonderful thing. Navigating that, you know, after having had a, a marriage end is weird but awesome. And, uh, and I'm trying to figure out how to continue to have impact in a way that stays super connected to this idea of honoring my, in the, the intention of my creator. So stay tuned, my man, I'm gonna keep, I'm gonna keep doing, uh, hopefully good work that feels, um, way more valuable than, uh, than anything else. So that's it. Well, I appreciate it. Keep on keeping on it. You, of of the people in my life, I appreciate you, Dave, because you're always just straight up. You share with people <laughs> what's on your mind, what you're going through, uh, not ashamed. You're willing to pull back the curtains and let people see. And I think a, a big portion of that is because of that empathy bridge that you're trying to create. So you brought up, uh, and we'll close with this, that the choice and the opportunity for growth is recognizing and honoring the intention of your creator. I will share this as I always close out each episode. Remember that growth is always a choice. Until next week, my friends, make it a great one. And remember to always honor 